Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In this way, St. Paul tells the Galatians about their new spiritual identity. In the Messiah of Israel, all worldly markers of difference are concealed by the marks of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Nonetheless, in the eyes of the world, our differences remain, and there is nothing wrong with many of those differences. Different languages, different customs, different sizes, and perhaps most noticeably, different races. These differences have, unfortunately, been sources of contention among humans since time immemorial. And racism has been a particularly common form of abuse and domination. In the transatlantic slave trade and the ensuing system of chattel slavery in the New World, racism was woven into the fabric of the economy and society, sometimes even into its religion. And while chattel slavery came to an end, racism persists to this day. And it persists for a simple reason. Racism is sin. In our fallen state, every category of sin will remain with us until the Lord returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. However, the grace of Christ can and does heal sin in the lives of individual sinners and by extension in the wider world. We may not be progressing towards a completely racism-free world, but we can live in families, communities, and even countries, which, by God's grace, are less racist. To engage the sin of racism, however, Christians must not simply parrot secular platitudes, nor can we substitute ideology for theology. Nor again, should we ever confuse revolutionary violence with the power of the gospel of peace. The Catholic Church need not imagine itself on a march of progress away from a less enlightened past with regard to race issues. Is the Catholic Church a racist institution? No. Have there been and are there still racist Catholics? Yes. The Catholic Church should not, therefore, be Pollyanna-ish about the serious concerns people of color express about their own experiences in the world. 
Rather, we look deep into the riches of our tradition and find hope, praying for and working towards further development that reveals more clearly the will of Christ for his people's common identity in him. In the Catholic Church today, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers has made a name for himself by writing and speaking about race and faith, unflinchingly articulating the changeless doctrine of the Church while challenging his fellow believers to live up to the ideals of the gospel they proclaim. To transcend the noise of critical race theory, liberation theology, and the Black Lives Matter movement, we need a bold articulation of the Catholic position on matters of race, faith, and society. In his new book, Building a Civilization of Love, a Catholic Response to Racism, now available from Ignatius Press, Deacon Harold speaks with clarity and charity, engaging with and critiquing the secular anti-racism agenda to make God's anti-racist grace all the more appealing. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers is an internationally acclaimed speaker, a Benedictine oblate, a member of the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars, and author of Behold the Man, A Catholic Vision of Male Spirituality, also from Ignatius Press. It is my great pleasure to welcome Deacon Harold to the podcast today. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. How are you? Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well, thank you. Well, it's great to have a chance to talk to you today because I really enjoyed your book, uh, new out from Ignatius Press, called Building a Civilization of Love, a Catholic Response to Racism. Obviously, just from the title, our listeners will uh, recognize that it's a timely book. Um, and I think that uh, when they open it up, they will find it to be um, a real encouragement, a real place to um, find answers to questions that they may have. So let's jump right into it. Um, I, you know, one of the one of the things you present at the beginning of the book is the uniqueness, in a sense, of the Catholic response to racism. And so I just maybe you could just set the table for us by addressing that. Like, what's unique about the Catholic response to racism and what moved you to offer it to us? Yes. Well, well, thank you, Andrew. Um, I travel uh, speaking as a professional Catholic speaker and author about 250,000 miles a year. Um, and during the pandemic, of course, just like everybody else, I was stuck at home. And uh, so I said, well, since I can't travel, I've, I've had it on my heart to write about two things. One was about the diaconate. And uh, I, I wrote a book on, on the diaconate, particularly the service ministry of the deacon. And the other one was on the issue of racism. And I wanted to write about that because I really didn't see a truly Catholic response to this issue. Uh, obviously during the pandemic, that's when the George Floyd incident happened and, and uh, all the other uh, race related events, particularly in the actions with interaction with people of color and law enforcement. And so also my law enforcement background, all of that was on my heart. And what I was seeing was a lot of polemics, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, a lot of vitriol, and I wasn't seeing much of an answer, much of a truly uh, 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 response that would bring people together, that would start breaking down the wall of division between people of color. 
And I noticed that um, as I was surveying the, 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 uh, the culture, um, there were a lot of individuals and organizations who were claiming to be uh, to help build bridges of, uh, of healing and reconciliation. Um, so they were, they were saying racism on the outside, but they were Trojan horses on the inside. What they had agendas that had nothing to do with really uh, dealing with the race issue. So I decided to uh, to write about it. And from a Catholic perspective, because most of the, of the uh, responses that you see are, are secular. You know, uh, let's do um, uh, reparations or you know all these other things. And you know, um, and that doesn't work. And, and Martin Luther King, I think, nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. His response was rooted in the love of Jesus Christ, the same love as I mentioned the book in the beginning of 1 John 4, 16, God is love, right? And he who lives in love lives in God and God lives in him. And so that, that was my approach. How could we, as specifically as Catholics, address the issue from a foundation of faith? Yeah, and one of the points that you make right at the beginning of the book is is a, a, a distinction that I was grateful for to um, you know to kind of have you lay out for us. And you say this: we have to make a distinction between institutional racism and racist individuals within institutions. Could you say a little more about that? Yeah, sure, sure. So I start off by talking about the difference between prejudice and racism, because uh, just like the institutional racism, people in institutions who are racist, those terms have become conflated. And, and so um, as soon as someone says something, uh, they say, that's racist, that's racist. Well, no, hold on, hold on. Or the institution, police are racist, the church is racist. No, 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 we have to make clear distinctions. And so the distinction I make about institutional race, racism, people in institutions who are racist. Um, so th there are institutions that were, uh, are, are um, by the inherent nature of race, for example, slavery, the institution of slavery in the United States. Uh, in the post-bellum era, uh, you had Jim Crow laws, right? You had apartheid in South Africa. You had uh, redlining. Yeah, you had uh, the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiments. Uh, clearly, clearly, those were institutional racism because they were literally written into the laws and institutions and practices of the government of the, and society, uh, different institutions in society at that time. But we have to make a distinction between that and people in institutions who are racist. So for example, today, um, for, for example, uh, giving out a loan. Now I talk about redlining. Redlining was a practice where when they were mapping out areas for development, economic development, they drew a red line around uh, neighborhoods of color where people of color lived. And we're, you know, we're not gonna put our money into these areas. So that's called redlining. Now today that's illegal and there's all kinds of laws in place to prevent that. But there still are people who may have an attitude that's part of that institution to say, you know what, I'm my job is to give out loans to small businesses. I don't feel good giving out a small business loan to this, this small business run by these people of color, because I don't think that Hispanics and Blacks and um, uh, Asians are, you know, can pay back the loans. I just don't think that they're good business people. Now, now that's not the practice of the institution. Because the institution says you you will not look at race, you will not look at color, you will not look at any of that. You just you just look at the, the the numbers, you make a loan decision. 
but there's an individual in there that has a prejudice or is a racist that are making decisions based on that. So, so we have to make those clear distinctions. And, and why is that important? Because Jesus Christ did not come to save institutions, he came to save people. You know, you can't even say the church is racist. Why? The church was founded by Jesus Christ, the, the son of the living God, right? The, the, the church is, the, is the, the, the spotless bride of Christ. But there are people in the church <laughs> who may have ad racist attitudes or, or prejudices. And, and so we have to make those clear distinctions if we're going to move forward to, to, to bring understanding, reconciliation, and healing. That's really helpful. And it's a good segue, too, into um, the, where, you, where you kind of begin the, the meat of your book, namely with scripture. Uh, you know, could, there are people who say, well, what, is, what does the Bible say about racism? What does the Bible say about slavery? Um, and I, I really appreciated how you, how you proceeded through that. Could you give our listeners a sense of, you know, what, what to do with the Bible? In a, you know, as Catholics, as Christians, in our engagement with secular people who want to talk to us about what scripture says about racism and slavery. Yeah, this goes back to what Vatican II taught in Dei Verbum, uh, the, the second Vatican document on the word of God. It says that we as Catholics have to look at the entire content and unity of scripture. We just can't take out a verse here, take out a verse there and, and, and say, well, this is what it means. No, we have to look at the, the entire book um, as, as, a, as a complete de deposit of faith along with, with sacred tradition, of course, but the Bible itself is that, is that written deposit of faith. And so um, you have to, what does the, the Bible itself say about race, about making um, uh, preconceived judgments about people? And so I start off talking about, you know, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, a number of verses that talk about, um, about perverting justice. Um, uh, about not having partiality in dealing with with other people, you know. So I just, uh, I, I have quite a few of them in there because I want to I want people to see that there is strong bi biblical precedence for what I'm about to say in the book. So I'm not just basing it on Deacon Howard's opinion. I'm basing it on the Word of God in, in sacred Scripture, uh, and then from there I have to talk about uh, slavery in the Bible. Why? Because Saint Paul says. Slaves, be obedient to your master. Someone sees that, wait a minute. Look at what St. Paul, St. Paul promoted slavery. Now, when people think slavery, they think chattel slavery, right? Uh, the, what the, the, for example, what the people of color went through here in the United States, what um, Israel went through with, uh, with uh, Egypt in the book of Exodus. You know, um, so, but, but the thing is the Bible talks about five different types of quote unquote slavery. And I say that because again, one of the advantages of studying Hebrew is that you can really get the sense of what they're actually saying. They use the same word, but it means different things. So for example, they do talk about chattel slavery. Um, uh, and it's just very, very clear. You are not to enslave anyone because you, you, know, you were once slaves yourselves in the land of Egypt. So very clearly there, um, you know, it talks about, yes, acknowledging that that kind of slavery exists, but you are not to participate in it as people of God. They also had indentured servitude. So for example, you have four kids, you have a fifth child, and you can't afford to feed and clothe that child. You would give that child to another family as kind of a hired servant, and that child would work for that family as a servant, 
for seven years because after the end of seven years was a jubilee year, all the slaves were released. But but again, quote unquote slaves, right? Indentured servitude, but they called it slavery. Um, and and they had rights, you know, that that the the slave that the the slave owners were supposed to respect, and and they could become members of families, right? There was also conjugal servitude, which is basically an arranged marriage, um, penal enslavement, permanent enslavement. So you could become, as I mentioned, you could become a member of a family. So if you are a slave and then you get married and have a family, you know, at, at the end of seven years, you could you are going to be released, but the, the, the slave owner kept the wife and the children. He said, no, I want to become part of this family so I want to keep my wife and children. That's called per permanent enslavement. And finally, penal enslavement. So the, like the guys that you see at the side of highways picking up trash, if you commit a crime, you know, like, you know, you have to do that kind of service. That was also called um, enslavement. So we have to be careful here. And I have to, make again, make clear distinctions that people understand when we're using the term slavery, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah. And, you know, that connects to the next thing I wanted to bring up, which is the way the way the church has has taught on on these matters. Um, you know, you made the distinction we, we talked about earlier about the difference between institutional racism and racist individuals within institutions. And I yep. I really appreciated how you how you demonstrate that in your discussion of the church, you know, namely pointing out prominent examples of racists in the church, and then also prominent examples of people who fought against racism in the church. You know, you conclude uh, a, lot of the, a lot of what you're saying with that by saying the church's response to racism has been steadily making progress. And I, I have to say, reading, reading what you wrote, I felt encouraged. Um, I wonder if you could just say more about that. Like, what, what is that, you know, what, what would you say overall is kind of the church's record on these matters? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because literally just the other day, I was taking a uh, a, a, a rideshare vehicle um, to the airport. And, um, the, the, you know, I usually, I, I'm, a, I'm an introvert, so I usually just like to stay quiet during those rides because I, I, ride, I ride that stuff all the time. But the guy was just making small talk. He goes, hey, what do you do? I'm an author. Oh, what do you do? Well, it's a book about racism. And he, he saw my crucifix. I always wear a crucifix when I travel. And he saw my crucifix. He said, what, well, what, are, what religion? I said, well, I'm Catholic. He goes, oh, you know, the Catholics, you know, you know, they, you know, they started slavery. Whoa, time out, you know? So, I mean, but, but that's the perception that a lot of people have. And so it was very important that we showed the church's record, which is very uneven. So, and we had to, and I had to be honest. Yes, there were very much pro-slavery Catholics. There were bishops, there were, priests, there were religious orders who bought and, and sold slaves that participated in the slave trade. In fact, there were uh, a number of church prelates who used scripture and tradition to try to justify the practice of chattel slavery. You know, it, so you, know, you have to show that, sadly. But again, on the other side, you also have to show uh, prominent Catholics in the church who are also very much against it, who are living the biblical values that the church taught for so long. And I also, uh, my favorite part of that chapter, quite frankly, is the statements of the popes. Pope after pope after pope came out with documents clearly condemning the practice of slavery. Uh, I, I traced the councils through the history of the church that, um, that excommunicated people that uh, participated in the slave trade. 
And, and so, you know, what do you, and I have to show, here's the documents, here's what the church says, here's what the, the, the Pope say. A lot of people aren't aware of these documents. And so I have to show, well, wait, well, how come, how come the, the bishops of the United States didn't follow this? Well, they ignored it. They were like, oh, well, that doesn't apply to us. That's Europe. You know, the, 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 the Pope doesn't understand what's happening here in the U.S., and so, you know, and so you have this very uneven approach. It wasn't until the 1950s, really 1958, until the uh, when the bishops came out with the document as a body of bishops, um, discrimination in Christian conscience, where they start to talk about um, uh, racism and the, and the condemnation of the practice of, of, of racism uh, from society and from the life of the church. And from then on, we have a number of documents from individual bishops and from the U.S. Bishops uh, Conference themselves, uh, wonderful documents that, that talk about how to, how to deal with this issue. The key, the key to this whole thing, it seems to me, Deacon Harold, is the fact that racism is sin. And yes. you know, so it's no surprise that then, of course, that there are sinners in the church, including at very high levels, right? And there are you know, whole networks and organizations, there are all kinds of things that then, you know, grow up over the centuries um, that have a sinful character to, to some degree. Um, but it seems to me, you know, to transition to the next part of your book, this, this, the fact that racism is sin is the thing that even, even where individual Catholics and Christians, even where, you know, uh, even people representing the church have gotten these issues of race very wrong, the church is still able to say, look, we say it's sin and therefore God can heal that. But it seems to me that the worldly response that we're living through right now, and in the next chapter, you talk about critical race theory, is that that's the missing piece. That if we're not identifying racism as sin, then we really are at a loss for what to do about it. And it's no surprise that then different theories and things sort of pop up that try to, that try to deal with it. Now, you say that critical race theory is, is ultimately incompatible with Catholicism. I wonder if yeah. you could, could explain to our readers, you, you do it, you explain it in the book in such a methodical way, going through these five tenets. Um, what are the ways in which we have to say ultimately as Catholics that, that critical race theory uh, won't work for us? Yeah, so let me, let me talk about that for a second. So, so um, during this part, this middle part of the book, I wanted to, I talked about three ideologies. You mentioned critical race theory, and I also talked about liberation theology and the Black Lives Matter movement, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes. But so, so what I want to do was put all three of those in one chapter because I didn't want to give them the attention, you know, um, uh, you know, like I thought they, they didn't deserve full chapters. It just, I just wanted to kind of add my critique to it. But what changed was I wanted to make sure that I'm representing honestly, what the people who develop critical race theory have to say for themselves. I don't want to say, well, here's what some political pundit says. Here's not my personal opinion, not, not, not my emotional response to this. And in fact, I went in with a very objective mindset. I said, you know what? Look, all these people saying critical race theory is bad. You know what? To be honest, I'm not 100% sure exactly what it is. So let me find out for myself what critical race theory is. Let me study it. And then, you know, maybe there is something there that we Catholics can use as a way of bridging the racial divide. That was my thinking. And so I bought Richard Delgado, Derek Bell, Janine Stefanik, Kimberly Crenshaw. I bought their books and I read them. 
And, and so I want to see what they have to say for themselves. And the more I read, the more I realized, uh-oh, this is not going to work for us at all uh, at, as Catholics. Why? Again, nothing to do with any personal ad hominem attacks against the people who developed the theory, but the theory itself um, is problematic. Why? If you look at what it is, it's, uh, it's an intellectual hypothesis. First of all, it's critical race theory, not critical race fact. Uh, and the fact that Catholic schools and some parishes are trying to bring this into the discussion. And that's why I had to address it. Because to, to, a lot of people who are doing that don't know what this is. They say for themselves that it is an intellectual hypothesis where the premise, the foundation of their, of their definition of race it has nothing to do with categorical differentiating or biological distinction. So it's not about um, uh, Hispanic, uh, 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 African, Filipino, you know, that or has nothing to do with um, biological, black, white, or Asian, you know, uh, Mexican. It, not, it has nothing to do with that. It's a socially constructed instrument. So it's a social construct used to exploit and oppress people of color. That is the, what they understand to be the definition of race. Now, that to me, right when I read that, red flags started to go up in my head. I said, wait a minute. So race is a social construction? So if I, if I look at a person like, okay, that person is not Caucasian. They're a social construct. That, that is, it, right away, it started not making sense to me. And the more I read about what it is, so critical race theory comes from critical theory from the 1970s, and what a critical legal theory. So critical legal theory said, even though laws have changed, the attitudes toward race haven't changed. So that's what critical legal theory looked at. And that came from the critical theory from the 1920s. Uh, and a lot more people have, again, I didn't want to go into deep detail about uh, all of that because there's other books that have been written. In fact, Ignatius Press put out a great book um, about that uh, uh, last year about, about critical race theory itself. Um, so uh, people can read that if they want more detail. Uh, but that comes from the critical theory, which comes from um, from actually Karl Marx and not Engels at that time, but Freud, um, this dialectical materialism, which also which comes from the Hegelian dialectic. I, I know that sounds <laughs> that sounds like really deep, uh, but it, it makes when you read the book, it makes much more sense. So so Hegel had this idea of a, a thesis and a countering antithesis and the tension, conflict and struggle between thesis and antithesis leads to a new synthesis. So what Marx and Freud did was they, they took that, which was uh, originally applied to hard sciences and applied it to social science. And then what Marx and Engels did, they took that dialectic and they applied it to, the, the, to socialism. So they had the bourgeois, as a, a thesis, a, the uh, a proletariat as an antithesis and attention conflict and struggle lead to a new synthesis, which is socialist communism. Um, and so critical race theory draws from that same model, tension, conflict, struggle as a way to facilitate change. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus didn't come to, 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 to tear down institutions. He came to bring people into deeper, intimate, loving, and life-giving communion, intimacy with him, 
to, to lead people to the father's to the father's uh, most sacred heart. And, and so and so I, coming from that, I talk about five basic tenets of critical race theory. So again, in their own ways, I explain what they are and why we cannot accept those as Catholics. Again, based on what they say, not not my personal attack against them. Yeah, and I learned a lot reading that chapter. I know that our readers will too. And you know, you're as you said humbly a moment ago. You know, you, you you've taken uh, you you've really done yeoman's work for all of us that you've dived into uh, these you know this difficult academic stuff. And and you've really done a, a brilliant job. I think like laying it out in a way that the the average reader can just pick up and say, oh, okay, that's what that means, and that's why it's a problem. So that's really helpful. Um, and you know, you, you said before, you know, really. In some respects, the the most problematic word in critical race theory is the theory part, right? Because our yeah. faith is lived; it's it's real; it's it's in in incarnational, right? Um, now, the next thing that you sort of that you get into is liberation theology, and you know, I want to connect the two. I want to connect the points here because you know, liberation theology, it seemed to me, is this attempt to say, okay, well, there's theory, uh, but what's a way to kind of like run this theory through? through kind of Christian language a little bit. And um, I thought your engagement with uh, liberation theology and with um, Gustavo Gutierrez's thought in particular was really, was really, really helpful. Could you tell our listeners what liberation theology is and kind of what, what the problems are with that? Yeah, so there, there are a number of different branches of liberation theology, but I want to focus on the one from the kind of Catholic perspective. And so you have to go to the father of Catholic liberation theology, which is the Dominican priest, Father Gustavo Gutierrez from Lima, Peru, who's still alive, by the way. Uh, um, I, don't, I don't think he's, he's writing very much anymore, but he's, he's still around. Uh, so, so liberation theology is a theological approach that emphasizes socioeconomic and political freedom from oppressive peoples, institutions, and structures. Okay, so, so, Again, it's a, it's a it's a, a kind of socio-political approach to how we deal with racism and oppression uh, within our cultural culture today. And again, the hermeneutic or the interpretive key that runs through the theme that runs through critical race theory, liberation theology, and and we're going to talk about in a few minutes the Black Lives Matter movement is this Hegelian dialectical thinking of tension, conflict, struggle as a way to, to make change and facilitate change. And so um, when we look at what Father Gutierrez was doing, he was looking at the, the political situation, what was going on in South America at that time, and trying to apply a Catholic way of thinking about how to deal with the problems of what he was seeing, corruption in government, um, the, the, the abuses of, of some forms of capitalism you know, and, and that kind of thing. So he was trying to apply a Catholic approach to this. Um, and again, I, 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 find it, I find it problematic and I, and I outline the reasons for that. Again, not attacking Father Gutierrez, but, but saying, is there something here that can help us in this discussion of ameliorating race, racism? And, 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 and it, just, it just doesn't. Um, so I talk about the, uh, the mode of operation and the practice of liberation theology that just, that just doesn't work. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to change structures or institutions. He came to change people. So we have, Jesus talked about metanoia or shub, 
in Hebrew, which is conversion. It means to, to turn your mind around, acknowledging our sinfulness and then turning back to God. See, that, that's very much, it's in fact, quite frankly, Andrew, it's, it's, it's different, it's backwards. So they're saying change structures in order to change people. I'm saying, no, change people in order to change the structures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. it's, it's, it's actually quite, it's quite backwards in, in, in my thinking. I, and I lay those arguments out in the book um, for, for why liberation theology as uh, practiced by Catholics, again, doesn't work. And specifically when it's, I'm talking about, again, the discussion of race. Yeah. And you also mentioned that liberation theology always had this problem of what to do about violence as well. And, yes. you know, it had, you know, that, that, that's kind of tricky. And, and maybe the, maybe the biggest point, and I think this is something you highlight in the book that when John Paul II and when Pope Benedict and others talked to people who were interested in liberation theology or talked about liberation theology per se, it seemed like the message they were trying to convey was, this message of freedom that you all are embracing is actually just too small. You know, like uh, just as you said, I mean, Christ came to set us free in a much bigger way than just the kind of liberation that you're imagining through kind of sinful, the sinful world that we live in, right? And that brings us to your, your um, discussion of black liberation theology, um, which is, um, well, maybe you could just tell us what it is. And again, like why it doesn't quite satisfy when we're looking for how to deal with racism. Yeah, this this is something that I, I definitely wanted to address uh, because Black liberation theology uh, draws a lot from uh, Father Gutierrez's approach to liberation theology, and quite frankly, from from uh, from uh, critical race theory or elements of critical race theory. I, I should say to be fair, uh, and so I wanted to I wanted to address that again. What what was happening here is in uh, a lot of Black liberation theology. They compare the, the, the magisterium of the church and its relationship to the people of God, the faithful, to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Israelites. So in a sense, we have to free ourselves from the institutions that are um, preventing us from having a, a full, deep relationship with God. And so we have to free ourselves from the, the slavery of the magisterium with all these rules and regulations and, and really find you know, Jesus in, in the freedom that he gives us to, you know, to, to love unconditionally. That, I mean, again, is is again that's why again I made the distinction. You have to talk about the the church herself cannot be racist, but people in the church who are racist. But what they're saying is no, we have to change the institution in order to make any real progress in issues of of dealing with race. And and again, that is completely backward approach. Um, to what to what I'm saying, although I do acknowledge um, some of the the good thoughts uh, of, of what they're attempting to do, so I have to acknowledge that. But I think we and I and, I, and I'm very careful here not to overly criticize because I understand what they're trying to do and where they're coming from. Trying to give voice to a people who have been voiceless for so many years during slavery and, and the postbellum era and Jim Crow and the slow response to the church to deal with this issue. I get all of that. And so I wanna be sensitive to that, but at the same time, I have to you know, uh, call things out um, as, I, as I see them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and so the, when they talk, bringing in James Cone, mm. uh, who's very anti, uh, uh, anti uh, well, I think he's a racist myself. 
you know, um, and his and his approach to this, it just it just doesn't fit. Um, and so I, so I just wanted to to um, have people just understand where that's coming from, and, and that our authentic black theology is actually quite good. Um, uh, when it talks about you know uh, a black spirituality that uh, that affirms the essential goodness of the black experience, um, provides strength in the in the in the face of racism and prejudice, um, uh, challenges us uh, as a people of color to to uh, uh, to ethically to live ethically despite injustice and persecution, like Father Tolton Augustus Tolton did, like Saint Josephine Bakita did. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the midst of of everything they were going through, in, in the height of uh, of extreme racism, they became saints, mm-hmm. and that is my that is my point for that chapter. Yeah, I want to I want to come back to kind of the special gift to the church of black spirituality, maybe in just a second. But before we depart from the the topic of black liberation theology, I just want to point out to our listeners, you know, you engage with. Um, you mentioned James Cone. You engage with his sort of in, in kind of you know modern theological circles a pretty famous book called A Black Theology of Liberation. Um, you know, I myself went to a, a liberal Protestant divinity school, and you know, Cone was a was a just his work was just revered to be sure. And back then, I wasn't you know probably wasn't thinking enough about about these important topics. But I, I have to admit, most of our readers of, of all races who pick up your book, uh, your book, I think are going to be surprised with some of the things that Cohn said um, and the way in which you engage with them. I mean, he wrote, for example, whiteness is the symbol for the Antichrist. Um, and, and he even says, in a word, sin is whiteness, um, which, you know, I didn't want to say it myself, but you've already said it. So we can, we can talk about it a little more, I guess. But there is, in a sense, a kind of reverse racism that's embedded in some of this in some of this uh, black liberation theology, uh, which it seems to me is, you know, it, it, again, like as you say so well throughout your book, I mean, the, we don't want to just ignore, we certainly can't ignore the voices of, of people who are sharing their, you know, sharing their authentic testimony and story and the pain that they've experienced purely on the basis of the fact that they were born a certain color. I mean, that is something that we cannot ignore. Um, but we, in a sense, like we, we have to stay focused on what sin really is so that we don't misconstrue what the problem is and, and approach the wrong solution. So I don't know if there's a question in that, but if there's anything more you want to say about Cone or, or Black Liberation Theology, I just, I thought the chapter was so well-written. So I, I was great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And one, I guess the one other piece um, is, is we have to be careful with Liberation Theology is, and I, I draw this out in the Vatican documents, the politicization politicization of the gospel, right? So we, 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 we can't take the gospel and turn it into a, 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 a political uh, document um, or, or, or make it the, the center of any kind of politicized discussion. Um, because why? The evangelizing witness and the effectiveness of the gospel loses its power when we try to, instead of being made in in God's image and likeness, we try to make God in our own image and likeness, and and, and that's and that's deeply problematic, um, and so and and that's why I felt I needed to address it. And I, I did again. I, I do draw from uh, uh, some theologians, black theologians, who I thought had some good thoughts with regard to this issue that I think could be helpful in the discussion. But 
But overall, I think it's uh, you know something we just need to be aware of. And I just wanted to make sure readers understood where I'm coming from on that issue. Yeah. Well, again, uh, I, I think our, our readers will be really uh, edified by reading that. Let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, maybe I'll just start with what's the difference between the idea, the statement, Black Lives Matter, and the movement called Black Lives Matter? Yeah. So, so I start off that chapter by talking about a, a, during the pandemic, I was asked to do a, a podcast for uh, Australian um, podcast, uh, which is great. I mean, I've, I've done a number of shows with them. And so they want to talk about Black Lives Matter. And that's all it was. Just Deacon Harold's going to come on and talk about Black Lives Matter. And that was it. There was a, he created a meme. He put it out there on social media. And I was getting emails. I was getting Facebook messages and, and Instagram messages. And I thought you were Orthodox, Deacon Harold. What happened? You're, you're, you're endorsing Black Lives Matter. I said, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it caused kind of fire. So people were, were, I was losing followers and stuff. And, and so George Manasseh, who's the host of the show, contacted me and said, Deacon, should I take it down? I'm like, nope. Leave it there because people are actually going to have to hear what I have to say now, right? And so, 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 even the words "Black Lives Matter" just brings all kinds of emotion into uh, into the situation, into the discussion. And so, again, making distinctions. There's nothing wrong with the words "Black Lives Matter." Nothing wrong with the words at all, because at the heart of what those words are about. It's speaking to the angst and to the frustration of Black people, as I mentioned before, endured centuries of exploitation, abuse, humiliation. I talk about even my own the history of my own parish in Portland, Oregon, Immaculate Heart of Mary, where uh, people of color had to endure, you know, sitting in the back of the church. The church is supposed to follow Jim Crow. Church is supposed to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even in our own churches, they had to sit in the back or in the choir loft or Black kids were not allowed to be altar servers. I mean, that's ridiculous. And so the words Black Lives Matter is fine. The problem is um, the institution, the Black Lives Matter movement is the issue. Uh, because what they've done, they, they've taken these words and again, politicized it and polemicized it to the point now, as soon as you say those words, it just raises all kinds of uh, emotion and anger and angst within people's hearts. And so what I, again, what I did was, and I, when I saw during the pandemic, when I was thinking about this book and look at these issues, I went to their website and I could not believe when I said, because I, 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 again, wanted to go, maybe just uh, have an open mind. Maybe there's something here that they're saying that we can use that will help in this discussion. But when I read their statement of their belief statements, um, we, you know, we, it starts off, we're guided by the fact that all Black Lives Matter. Very good, excellent. But then after that, perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters. Um, uh, we we require to dismantle cisgender privilege. So cisgender is basically the the sex you were you were born. Like if you came out, you had a penis, you're a boy. If you came with a vagina, you're a girl. And they call that cisgender privilege. And to uplift black trans folks, we disrupt Western prescribed nuclear family structure. In other words, mothers, fathers, and children. We wanna disrupt that, they say, um, by supporting extended families and villages and, 
you know, mothers. And I'm like, holy, whoa. And I said, what does any of that have to do with Black Lives Matter? What does any of that have to do with helping to, to bring racial healing division? And, and that's where the problems begin with the, the Black Lives Matter movement. It's really not about Black Lives Mattering at all in, in the end. It's a whole agenda designed to destroy the nuclear family. That's their agenda. Yeah. And you note in the book that they, they, they don't seem too concerned with unborn Black lives, uh, which is a, a category of, of human beings that are in grave danger, it seems to me. And that's, you know, they, but they don't really fit, you know, unborn children don't fit into the, the, the movement of Black Lives Matter. Um, no, exactly. Exactly. And it's not just me. And you know, I, I also quote from Bishop Braxton, who, um, who I've had tremendous respect for, who actually personally engaged the Black Lives Matter movement in his book. He actually sat down and had discussions with them. And he records that in his book. And I was fascinated uh, 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 by, by the discussion. He comes to the same conclusions that I do. Um, you know, if you're going to talk about Black Lives Mattering, it should really be a problem that a few years ago in New York City, more black children were aborted than were born alive. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that even though um, uh, black women um, make up uh, what thir- blacks make up thirteen percent of the population, black women uh, uh, make up thirty nine percent of all abortions. You know, I mean, that should be a problem. And, and, and here's the thing: uh, I was like, okay, where's their plan? for economic stability? Where's their plan for black entrepreneurship? Where's their plan to actually move our our people forward? Why is it when I go to Chicago that people say, well, stay away from the South side of Chicago. That's where my people that look like me live. And I'm afraid to go to my uh, my, uh, neighborhood because I'm afraid of my own people. What is that? You know, uh, abortion kills more black people every, every four days than the Ku Klux Klan killed in 150 years. That should be a problem, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's but it's not, and, and so I mean I have to. Yes, I I, I you know what I you know I, I know Andrew. I'm going to get criticized. I knew it as I was writing this, but I really I mean I took this in adoration. I I pray before the Blessed Sacrament to to just speak the truth in love, but it has to be the truth, mm-hmm. and we we have to face these things if we're going to really make Black Lives Matter then it has to be all black lives starting with the unborn. Yeah. Well, the, and the way you treat all of these things in the book is so is with such care and, you know, you don't shy away at all from saying what you think needs to be said, but uh, I think it, it will not, you will not, your words will not be misconstrued as pure, you know, uh, vitriol or, you know, or any kind of, you know, just wild ravings by any means. I mean, it is, it's just really measured stuff and great stuff. Um, in the in the last few minutes that remain here, Deacon Harold, so we've we've talked our way all the way through a, a whole bunch of things related to this, these very big questions of racism and society and the church. What do you think the church needs to do going forward? And I'm talking not just the you know the big church, the pope and the cardinals and the bishops and you know large scale stuff, but just us on the ground, individual Christians, individual parishes. What do we need to do to really build the civilization of love that you call us to? Yeah, and I think that's where we're going to make the biggest difference. And the reason why I say the Catholic Church can take the lead in this issue, look, look, let's be honest. In a lot of difficult issues surrounding the culture today, marriage, gender identity, all these different things 
the, the church really doesn't have that strong of a voice. And I, and I think that's because of the moral credibility issue that arose during the, the, the sex abuse scandal. I think the, 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 the bishops of the, the Church of the United States lost a lot of moral credibility. And so they are, have a difficult time talking about these issues. Um, because they said, well, who are you to talk about this? Because you look at, look at, your, look at your, what you guys did, that kind of thing. And so they're playing it safe. We're talking about important issues, right? The, the earth and ecology and, and, and migrants and immigrants. But let's be real. Um, young people, the nuns who are leaving the church, aren't leaving because of the environment or the earth or immigrants. They're leaving because they don't know Jesus deeply, personally, intimately. And I believe when it comes to this issue of race, that given the fact that there's a void in this discussion, like when Martin Luther King died, because think about it, why was he so successful? Here's a man during the height of Jim Crow, bringing people of different race and color and creed together around this issue. Why? Because his approach was not about changing structures. His, his approach was about changing people. His, his approach was based in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We as Catholics, our faith was founded by Jesus Christ. Let's go back to that approach and put the gospel and put Jesus Christ first. And so I think this has to start from the parish. I think this is a grassroots issue. And I think and I, I outline in the book five different things that we could do at the parish level. One, we have to start seeing people the way God sees them. Look at look at them through God's eyes. See past stereotypes and start to see people. And so I break down what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Because when I start to see people the way God sees them, when I look at someone through God's eyes, now I'm able to appreciate all the other wonderful gifts of their race and their color and their culture and their food and their music, all these other things that, that give expression to that divine identity. So we have to start seeing the divine identity of our brothers and sisters standing in front of us. In or, and I think that's the, the biggest brick that needs to be removed out of the wall of racial division. Once we do that, we're able to appreciate the gifts that all, all of us bring to the church. And then second, uh, appreciate the gift of cultural diversity. So I talked about some very practical, very simple, very practical things we can do of, about you know a, a, a more um, authentic enculturation into the mass, not liturgical dance, which does not belong in the mass at all, not just playing secular music for the place of, uh, for the uh, 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 for just for the sake of playing music, but but this, for example, in South Africa, I was digging in the mass of Soweto. And it was the mass was two hours and twenty minutes long, and it felt like ten minutes. It was beautiful, and there were some beautiful things happening in that mass. And I was and I was like, I was really uh, moved at how deep, deeply spiritual all that was. But at the same time, I was thinking that's not us, in the United States. Right? So it's a it's a different expression. But to appreciate the depth of different cultural, authentic cultural expressions of worship. And, and appreciating that, even putting pictures of 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 uh, people, saints of color, up in the church, like in our church in Immaculate Heart, we have Saint Terry Tetequitha, we have um, Saint Martin de Porres, we have uh, a statue of Our Lady Lavang, because half of our parish is Vietnamese, an approved apparition of of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Vietnam. You know, simple things like that. Um, having this discussion groups, promoting conversation and dialogue, we're talking about some of these amazing documents put out by the U.S. bishops. 
where we're sitting, you know, we're sitting in little study groups and actually working our way through the documents. And because that's going to bring up stuff within yourself. So you can have some real honest discussion that gets to the heart of, of, the, of the prejudices you may even be experiencing within your own self. You know, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like I would love, I would love, for example, during the discussion, someone said to me, you know, Deacon, for some reason, when I'm around black people or Hispanic people, I get nervous. I don't know why. I don't want to feel that way. I think it's stupid, but I don't understand why I feel that way. Can we talk about that, please? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It, it's honest. You know, and then finally put God back into society. We, we're taking God out of everything in our culture. We need to put God back into our culture um, uh, and not be afraid to, um, to, to include our faith as, as part of the, the, the discussions of, of, of what's going on in our culture. And finally, to pray. Uh, pray, fast, Eucharistic adoration, devo- um, devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, consecration to her. Uh, I think are all different ways that we at the parish level can really begin to take the lead in this issue of race where people can say, look what the church is doing and follow our lead as we lead people to a deeper love of Jesus Christ. Amen to all that. The book is Building a Civilization of Love, a Catholic Response to Racism by Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, available from Ignatius Press wherever you get your books. Do not miss this one. Deacon Harold, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a joy to be with you. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless.